From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here is your host, Connie Coons. Hi everyone, it's Connie Coons, and you are listening to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. Author Dan Klefstad is back with us to share his third chapter of his novel in progress, The Guardian. Hi Dan. I can't believe we made it to three. We made it to three. You invited me back for a third, we're I'm honored. We're so glad. Oh, yeah. we're honored. Yeah. It's us. Trust me. All right, we're going to do Solstice today. The year is... It's 1997, um, and it's, um, this is a, you know, what's really interesting is this is a story that takes place in one room entirely, Mm -hmm. the kitchen of Fiona's place. Mm -hmm. Three characters total. At any given time, there will be two characters in that one room. Uh, Anyway, I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, it's weird. It's just like, it's so simple. And very cozy and very weird. And very much for adults. Remember, this podcast is for adults. Uh, before we start, could you tell us the names of the three characters in this chapter? Okay, we have Fiona. Yes. It's her place. We have Daniel, who is working for her, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have Soren Felenius, who we meet in The Caretaker, episode one. Good so. to see him back, being his weird self. Yeah. All right, let's get started. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> Daniel, is it finally gone? Her voice sounds annoyed behind the barely opened bedroom door. Let me check. I walk into the kitchen where President Clinton is saying he did not have sexual relations with that woman. I turn off the TV and check behind the curtain. The last rays of light retreat over the horizon. I wait a few seconds more. Yes. You have no idea how lucky you are, surviving under the moon and sun. Fiona enters the kitchen, silk clinging to her skin, anxiously tying her kimono. At least the nights will get longer now. The sun can kill me, too, if I spend too much time in it. I fill a crystal glass with ruby, her name for it, and set it on the table. Ultraviolet rays cause skin cancer, which reminds me, I'll need a few hours off tomorrow to see my doctor. I have a mole I'm worried about. Where? On my back. Let me see. Fiona seems genuinely concerned. It's nothing. You must be starving. If you're worried, I need to be worried. Take off your shirt. I'm not worried. I set the decanter on the table, unbutton and expose my upper body. She moves behind me and places a long, curved nail on the bumpy blemish. The rest of my skin gets goose flesh. How long have you had this? As long as I can remember, but it changed recently. She leans closer and sniffs. I also inhale, detecting yesterday's perfume in her hair, plus a whiff of flesh in the early stages of decay. She needs to drink now. The odor hangs in the air after she walks to the table and picks up her glass. It's nothing to worry about, but I can cut it out for you. Thanks, but I'll have my doctor do it. Suit yourself. She sips the O negative I bought yesterday. Does he have hospital rights? We could use another source. She. Oh. She takes another sip. What does she look like? Brown skin, black hair. She's Indian. 
Is she Mohican? Fiona once told me The Last of the Mohicans was her favorite book. She still keeps a first edition next to her bed, plus a pen in case the author is around to sign it. For a while, a rumor circulated that James Fenimore Cooper was turned into an immortal, but that story died a century ago. No, she's from India. Oh, I've never been. Her brow wrinkles. Maybe before, but I can't remember. Is she pretty? I guess. Why do you ask? Well, she takes another sip and I can see her skin regain its luminescence. A man needs a woman now and then, right? She's married. And? Her lips curl into a smile, briefly exposing her long canines. Out of habit, she covers her mouth. When's the last time you were carnal with someone? Her eyes sparkle as she says this. I don't know. Really? That's terrible. I can give you a night off if you need it. Just remember, if your doctor takes you to bed, be especially pleasing. We need people who know people. I'll keep that in mind. She looks at the clock and hands me the empty glass. I better get dressed. That's right, the solstice ball. Yes! Fiona twirls around the kitchen, dancing with an imaginary partner. The return of the darkness! Will Soren be there? Count Felenius is on the guest list. Why do you ask? No reason. Her face fills my vision. Our noses almost touch as her eyes search mine. He'll only stay for the day, if that's what you're concerned about. I'm more concerned about the way he treats you. What do you mean? I... The words stall inside. I want to tell her she doesn't have to share the O-neg and a room with a guest who acts like he owns the place. Every time he's here, I struggle to conceal my hatred for the way he lords over her and me. I turn on the faucet and rinse the glass. You know I can hear your thoughts. Then you know it upsets me when he drinks half our supply and doesn't pay for it. You'd think a count could afford to reciprocate. Whose supply? I half turn and see breasts bulging over crossed arms, her eyes burning holes through me. It's the silence that hurts the most, though. Her words are the only clue as to what's in her head. She remains in the kitchen just long enough to rub it in before leaving. Finally, before entering her room, just make sure there's enough ruby for both of us. My alarm goes off at five. Fiona never asks me to check that she's home by dawn, but I do it anyway. Her door is right across from mine. Hers bolts from the inside, and I never test it to respect her privacy. To be honest, I'm afraid to discover she sleeps with her eyes open. I saw that in a movie once. So before I go to bed, I leave a small stemmed glass on the kitchen table for a nightcap. When I rise, all I need to do is check for dregs on the bottom or lipstick on the rim. Sometimes she takes the glass to her room. But this morning, the glass is there, and it is full. The calendar says sunrise is at 5.15, and full daylight is at 5.34. I grab my keys and prepare for a search I only imagined. But then I hear a giggle from her bedroom, followed by another voice that sounds like Soren's. 
My sudden relief is spoiled by a feeling that goes beyond anger. Only after I return to my room and lay flat do I realize how disappointed I am. She could do better. Why doesn't she? I'll bring it to her. Soren stands in the kitchen, hand open, waiting for the Oneg. Ben Franklin once joked that guests, like fish, begin to smell after three days. Soren's been here for nearly a week. I gaze in his general direction, trying not to look at the window shade. At 521, the sun might be high enough to set him ablaze instantly. The only thing keeping me from tugging the cord and letting it fly is Fiona. She'd never forgive me. I don't care that Soren can hear this. He straightens as I hand him the glass. She'd have to turn you in, you know. The trial would be swift, and you'd suffer the worst pain imaginable. Then, just before you die, they'd make Fiona cut off your genitals and stuff them in your mouth. You and I both know she's too sensitive for that. He stares without blinking as he sips from her glass. I fill the sink with soapy water, resigned to washing extra glassware when I should be outscoring more O'Neg. I'd have you drawn and quartered if you left with anyone else. You know that, don't you? I shrug. At the time, I really didn't care. Soren seems hurt. Why? Was I such a bad master? I'm still trying to figure out what you're good at. Here's one. His icy fingers turn my face toward his. Fiona considers me an ideal companion, something you could never be. I attempt to look away, but he squeezes harder. You should also know this. Fiona wants you to return to me when she dies, so show a little more respect. Fiona never spoke with me about anything like this. She's only 230. I assumed she'd be fine as long as I set my alarm each night before dawn. My voice cracks. Fiona expects to die before you do? Anything can happen. The 49-year-old lets me go. We immortals are less likely to be so when the sun is in cancer. Cancer? The crab. Its claws remain open for 28 days, waiting for so-called immortals to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Fiona is more likely to die now than in any four-week period throughout the year. Combined. I ignore the fact that Soren is just as vulnerable. Why not move to Australia during the summer? Soren is briefly rattled. You see, remarks like that make me fear for Fiona under your care. Do you know what it would take to move her and me across the globe? I said nothing about you. Soren's gaze is as cold as outer space. She will hear about this. You really need to be nicer to him. Fiona sits at the kitchen table, leaning her head on one hand. He has feelings, you know. She glares at me, but then giggles, covering her fangs. God, he bruises so easily, like a hemophiliac. Soren says I am to return to him as part of your estate plan. Is that true? Well... I did steal you from him. There's a law against that. He wouldn't press charges. True, he needs me, 
or rather, this home as an occasional place to land. Where is he? Oh, you didn't know? He's on his way to Australia. She laughed suddenly. The other day, he said, Did you know it's winter down there? Can you believe it? He didn't know. I looked down at the table for a few seconds. But I am to return to him in the event... She shrugs. I promised, apparently, and... We guardians are second-class citizens. Look at you, reading my mind. My mouth twists as I taste a truth that's only been implied. So I can never retire? Oh, I wouldn't say that, her head straightens. But I'll need you for as long as possible. Hi, Dan. Hello, Connie. It was wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad to be here again. All I mean, right. this is uh, this has been just wonderful talking with you about my uh, about the the scribblings that take forever, and finally <laughs> I get them out, and somebody cares. Yes, we all care. No, we all no. care, and hopefully our listeners care. And listeners, we want to hear back from you. So when you hear these podcasts, be sure to let us know what you're thinking and what you would like to also hear. All right, now we're in the year 1997. Mm-hmm. A beautiful year. Well, it was certainly uh, an interesting year politically. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, okay. I do remember. Well, tell me what happened politically. I know you mentioned in Solstice, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton and his sexual non-relations. Right. I did not have sex with that woman, Miss mm-hmm. Lewinsky, or whatever he said. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. that woman. Yeah, that woman. Right. Oh, he didn't even goodness. use her name. Yeah. Yeah, which was really kind of you know. It would hurt my feelings had I been that woman, but mm-hmm. I wasn't. I, I, yeah. <laughs> well, what am I? Anyway, let's go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really want to be clear. I didn't want to be that woman. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What was your life at that time in 1997? I was 27. I remember it very well. I was 30. Mm -hmm. And I was, I had just become the morning edition host for WNIJ. So this had been September. I don't remember when the the Clinton Lewinsky bimbrolio, as as I think the the New Republic, uh, I think they were the ones who came up with that term, uh, (laughs) erupted. Uh, but yes, 1997, I was very much focused on my work, starting really getting into my career mm-hmm. as a radio host mm-hmm. and um, also buying my first home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I bought a condo in Sycamore and I was I felt like you know, I'm 30. I'm going to be an adult. And why <laughs> is this president acting the way he is? He doesn't seem very responsible in his personal mm-hmm. life. So I was comparing, you know, the two. Uh, so that was the backdrop to, to to my life at that time. Okay. Well, Solstice is the backdrop. That is also the backdrop for Solstice. Mm-hmm. And it takes place at the Solstice. Right. Uh, there are two the solst- summer Solstice. Yes. Mm-hmm. There are two Solstices a year. One is the summer. One is the winter. One is the highest point of the sun in the sky. The other one is the sun at the lowest point. Mm-hmm. And I would like to ask you about the highest point in your life. What was the longest, what was the best day of your life? Uh, this is going to sound corny, but I, I uh, my wife Susan and I, well, she was not my wife at that point. We we got engaged and we went down to Mexico, Puerto mm-hmm. Vallarta, and got married on the beach under the sun, and had our honeymoon in Puerto Vallarta. Um, this is 2006, uh, early February, and it was you know that was the greatest moment of my life. Mm-hmm. Finally, you know, finding a soulmate. Yeah, I 
the happiest day of my life is also my wedding. And I know it's corny, but it really was a wonderful day. Mm-hmm. And we were not in Mexico. We were in my parents' living room. Well, it doesn't matter you know. where it happens. <laughs> uh, it doesn't know, matter but, where it happens, but yeah. if it happens and it's wonderful, I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but conversely, let's hear about the worst day of your life, the longest day of your life. Can you tell us? The longest day of my life. Well, uh, this may sound like something everybody goes through. I, uh, you know, and it will be eventually. You know, my, when my mother died, mm-hmm. that was. Well, she had been sick for a long time, mm-hmm. and um, so there was a, this worst day really stretches on for weeks mm-hmm. and, and then the weeks after the year after when I became in charge of uh, winding down her estate and doing dealing with all that um, yeah that was a uh, the worst year mm-hmm. if you want to call it the day it was a day that stretched for 365 it was yeah. just uh, um, a really awful time mm-hmm. uh, to deal with and yeah uh, I, I can see yeah. that um, do you recognize other people who have been through it do you kind of look for people about your age who, do you kind of see that in other people? Hmm, I know they've been through that. Do you kind of? Yeah. Um, I, I, I see people going through that, and I occasionally, you know, well, you can't offer advice, even if you've been through it. Mm-hmm. You know, because of a person who's just lost a parent mm-hmm. or somebody dear to them, the last thing they want to hear is somebody saying, I know what you mean. I've been through it. Oh. Like, you know, it's like, almost like a one-upmanship, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you know. And so, uh, you know, you, I just stop what I'm doing and close my mouth and listen. Mm-hmm. Because I know that when I was going through that, I just wanted somebody to listen mm-hmm. and not give me their experience. Because all I could deal with that time was my experience. Mm-hmm. How old were you at that time? So this is 2009. I don't even remember. Um, that's, uh, 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 what is that, 11? No, uh, eight years ago, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, eight years ago. So I was 42? Oh, early about, 40s. Early okay. 40s, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I hear you. <laughs> uh, back to the chapter at the Solstice. This is the first time we really see the friendship happening between these colleagues you call them colleagues. That's interesting. Well, they yeah. seem to be. And yeah. they seem to get each other. They seem to have a rapport and a chemistry. Um, can you tell us about relationships in your own life that are like that? Work relationships, friendships, s- siblings. Where do you have a sense of teamwork when you have to get a certain specific and dirty job done? Yeah. Um, fortunately, um, if I've ever had to do anything that was, you know, how do I, let, me, let, let me back up. Fortunately, the teamwork I have at work mm-hmm. is simply focused on one thing, creating content, mm-hmm. good content, and getting it out there mm-hmm. for my radio job. Um, I, I, I really had to just imagine what it was like to have a relationship with an employer like Daniel has with, with uh, Fiona, mm-hmm. a relationship where I've given a lot up to be here with you. Mm-hmm. I've murdered. I live with this every day. And I'm, I recognize that I'm stealing blood from hospitals and, and, and you know, to get it to you who mm-hmm. w- will die if you don't have it. Mm-hmm. So I had to really imagine that relationship. I've never had a, a, a sick or weird codependent kind of relationship before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really had to imagine it. And um, I'm imagining, I tried to think about, okay, what's Daniel's motivation? We know what Fiona's motivation is, get the blood or die. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for him, it's like, well, the money is good. The money is really good. And so he has a job, and he has this dream of 
of, of one day retiring in absolute luxury. But we find in Solstice toward the end that it may not work out that way for him. He, you know, he's not going to get that right away. And in fact, he can't see it now. He doesn't know when that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I went all over the place there, but I, did, I hope I answered your question. You answered my question, and okay. it makes me wonder, mm-hmm. do you ever feel like you're giving too much of yourself to your craft? Um, my wife likes to joke that she's, uh, I'm an author widow, you know, she'll say <laughs> yes. occasionally. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Yes. Yeah. Where I, honey, I got to go up to the, I got to, I got to be alone for a day. I got to, I got to write this. Um, and you know, for the most part she understands, mm-hmm. but yeah, of course, uh, you know, there are, uh, there are weeks and maybe even months when I was working on a book or a story that, you know, I can't get back. Mm-hmm. We, uh, my, my wife and I can't get back, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, there's a sacrifice there. All right. Let me know if you can read my mind right now. You're thinking, I'm hungry. Oh, my God. Well, yes, always. Come on. You can do better than that. (laughs) I was projecting. (laughs) Uh, There are mind readers Mm. in your novel in progress. Yeah, the the vampires, um, if you're a human in the vicinity of a vampire, they are in your head. You cannot cannot, uh, keep your thoughts. Um, uh, from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's interesting is that they turn the tables on you. It, 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 the vampires uh, and the relationship they have with their their human—I don't want to say servants, but employ employees—is mm-hmm. that you know, if Fiona could just turn it off, if she doesn't say anything, mm-hmm. then Daniel's flying blind. He doesn't know how what she's thinking, what she's going to do. Mm-hmm. The only clue he has as to what's inside her head is when she's speaking. So very. It's very one-sided. Does it get crowded in, let's say, Wolf's head? Hmm. Does he hear the voices? Does he have a hard time getting them out of his head? Because he talks a lot? Well, not because he talks a lot. He has such an important job. They have such a high standard for him. Mm -hmm. Does it kind of drive him crazy? Does anybody kind of go a little bit crazy having these people read his mind, having him know that they read his mind, how does he relax knowing all that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how they, how either Wolf or Daniel relaxes around that. I, I haven't even thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you relax? Knowing how do I that relax? People, yeah, how do you relax when you know that people demand your attention mm-hmm. and your time every day? Oh, when I'm on the radio yes. and working for a public radio station, right. A- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. How so, do you... Um, I just work, work, work until I'm exhausted. And this is what... <laughs> and then I have a glass of wine at night and just, you know decompress mm-hmm. but and i think this is how daniel survives that mm-hmm. you know he the character he he just buries himself in his work mm-hmm. it's you know the, I'm, I'm keeping fiona alive how do i do this at the end of the night he's got a glass of scotch mm-hmm. that allows him to turn off some of those voices i guess you could say because yeah. he's got a lot of guilt he's done terrible things mm-hmm. to keep her alive and so that's all in his head. But it's yeah. just a glass. He's not an alcoholic. I think he's a heavy drinker. He's a heavy drinker. And he's getting heavier, I think. Oh, interesting. I think so. I imagine him being a heavy, progressively heavier drinker mm-hmm. as he tries to bury all this stuff that he's done and this guilt and, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, try to turn off the voices, as it were. Okay. Know? Very yeah. good. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to tell us a little bit about your outdoor life? I don't have much of an outdoor life. Um, I, I, I work in a basement at, at the radio station, <laughs> so I don't see the sun. <laughs> so yeah, technically I, am, I, have a, I have a lot in common with those vampires mm-hmm. who avoid the sun. Um, 
during the summer, I take try to take a walk every day you okay. know, for a half hour or whatever, and go back to work. Uh, I do have one place I go. Where? I go to the Kishwakito. Oh, it's a secret. It's so, it's so okay. Oh, but I should tell you anyway because you asked. Uh, in the interest of being of journalistic integrity and everything, I want to tell you what you need to know. There's a place in Williams Bay that's really the center of the small village. Mm-hmm. It's 200 acres of woodlands, wetlands, and, and, and prairie mm-hmm. uh, called the Kishwakito, which is um, uh, managed by some sort of not-for-profit organization that takes care of this conservation area. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I go hiking. Mm-hmm. I'll even go hiking there in the wintertime. All right. It's quiet. I hear birds occasionally. Uh, but it's, it's a place where I can decompress on a weekend. And also get ideas. That's where I start thinking. I so, see. So the muse exists. Oh, yeah. And she's in the Kishwakato. Kishwakato. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for sharing that with us. Well, I promise I won't go peep you out in the woods. Yeah. Or be we weird. won't tell anybody All about right. it. It's a secret, the location. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was wonderful. So thank you for sharing Solstice and this Solstice and this interview with us. Well, thank you for listening okay. and for, for reading and, for inv- again, for inviting me in for these podcasts. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's really great. Okay. See you next week. Okay. Solstice originally appeared online at the Creativity Webzine. Guilty Pleasures was made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, The Shumway, Rockford Area Arts Council, Freeman AV, and you, our listeners. Remember to let us know what you think of Guilty Pleasures by rating us on iTunes, emailing editor at rockfordwritersguild.org, or joining us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Guilty Pleasures. This is your producer, Jesse Koontz. Thank you for listening. Now go write.